I had the privilege of interviewing Jimmy Dennis on April 1st of 2019, shortly after he was released from death row in Pennsylvania. He served 25 and a half years and had two execution dates actually scheduled. I mean, I'm talking about they asked him what his last meal was going to be, where he wanted his remains to be taken. It's unbelievable. 25 and a half years, he lived in a tiny cell on death row with the lights on. They never turned him off. And yet he came out joyful, with a bounce in his step, ready to get back, you know, as much as he could of what he had lost. And, and here's the incredible thing. He was a singer when he was wrongfully arrested when he was 18 years old. He was, you know, on the verge of getting a record deal with his group. And the good news is that a few months ago, he made his onstage singing debut in New York City at the Church of Rock and Roll event at Gospel. He sang Hallelujah and he killed it, I gotta be honest with you. Now, he's in the process of launching a dog grooming business with his wife. The business plan is set and I think they're gonna make it a real success. He's also been the subject of the first Now This video documentary of the Wrongful Conviction podcast. And it is a beautiful, beautiful piece. He's a beautiful, beautiful guy. And Jimmy, if you're listening, I hope you're smiling and, and sleeping well, too, because you deserve nothing but the best of everything, and we're here to share your story. Please sit back and listen to Jimmy Dennis. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly, 11,945 days, okay? 11,945 days I've been in here, and um, it hasn't been easy. (laughs) A hundred years? That's me, I'm a kid, I didn't do anything, you know? And, uh, you know, that uh, that was real painful, man. You know, because... My life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something. You know, 100 years, and I had dreams, and I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know. I was a very good young man. That is what happens in so many cases. The cops have a hunch because they're so smart at the scene. They have a hunch. And once they act on that hunch, they sort of develop tunnel vision. And they take off marching in the wrong direction. And that happens in so many of these wrongful convictions. They opened the the cell door and I walked downstairs. And I actually walked downstairs to to be outside. It felt very strange um, to be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream. But then again, it wasn't a dream. This is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today, I have a guest whose story has to be heard to be believed. It's a Philadelphia story. It's a death penalty story. And it's uh, sort of a miracle, actually, that you're even here at all under the circumstances, much less with a smile on your face. So, <laughs> yeah. um, And he does have a big smile. So I want to welcome to Wrongful Conviction, Jimmy Dennis. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank Jimmy. you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And, and like I always say, I'm, I'm sorry you're here, but I'm glad you're here. Um, and I want to get right into it because I think it's super important to talk about this case, not only because it was a death penalty case, but also because of the fact of your case being so bizarre in that there was never anything to connect you to this crime. Not that I know about it. Right, anyway. now. Nah. The case happened October 22nd, 1991, in the Fern Rock Station of Philadelphia. A young lady by the name of Shadell Williams was brutally murdered for a pair of earrings by three men. $450 earrings. A pair of $450 earrings. Right, a high school girl. I yeah. Mean, you know, when they say $450 earrings, I'm assuming that's retail. So whoever, whoever killed her for these earrings probably got... Maybe a hundred dollars for it, right? At best, that, that's what her life was worth. Right. A, a high school girl, right? When this happens, it's a high-profile case. The community is outraged by it, so on and so forth. In Philadelphia, there's a lot of pressure in high-profile cases for the cops to solve crime. So, you weren't there when it happened. No, I wasn't there. In fact, you weren't even close by. I wasn't even close by. Well, let's go back to that, because where were you, and how did they end up? Like, w- w- I mean, it seems so random that you were several miles away. Right. 
and then yet they end up picking you up and then the whole thing goes sideways and backwards from there. So at the time of the crime, I was on a bus in Philadelphia called the K-Bus traveling to Abbott's Ford Projects where I seen someone familiar, you know what I mean, just acquaintance I said hi to. All this was instantiated, right? Even the time I said that I got on the bus and got off the stop, the bus driver testified that that was correct, right? So all these things were instantiated. So the police came around. They went to every neighborhood in the city of Philadelphia, and they started picking up stick-up boys. And when they did that, a group of individuals lied and said my name for ungodly reasons of jealousy or whatever you might want to call it. And you were 21? I was 21. I was barely... I was a young man. I, I wasn't even a man. I had uh, many aspirations of being in the music business. Um, I would come up here to New York to the new music seminar every year. My group was one of the best amateur groups in Philadelphia, and we were receiving interest from, you know, music people. What group was that? Uh, Sensation. And uh, we had won many talent shows. What kind uh, of style of music was it? R&B. R&B. And you were the singer? I was the lead singer. Wow. And yeah. so, yeah, who knows? We might have even crossed paths at the New Music Seminar back <laughs> yeah, then without even knowing it. Might have, yeah. yeah. But, um, but then things obviously went took a terrible, terrible... Right, and then things just started to turn from there. You even see in the statements that they all had talked on the phone or whatever, and then they just, you know, made up this, you know, story that I, you know, had on these clothes and that I was doing these things and... The police ran with it, but none of these people ever testified. I mean, were you caught up in the gang life or anything? I wasn't like caught that? up in any gang life or anything like that. I wasn't, you know, in any type kind of gangs. It really not really gangs in Philadelphia like that at that time. You know what I mean? So this was just people in the neighborhood didn't like me. You know what I mean? I had no significant criminal history whatsoever. I had a misdemeanor drug offense on my record. Uh, and that's all I ever had on my record up until the time that I was arrested. So going back from the misdemeanor, I had a picture, you know, mugshot that the police kept in the number one spot the entire time when they were showing witnesses the photo raise. So one witness said, I think so. They said, can you be sure? They said no. Yet and still, they ran with that. And what was the description of the suspect? Uh, five ten to six feet tall, to 180 to 200 pounds, dark skin complexion. Now, when they say dark skin complexion, they talking about Miles Davis or Wesley Snipes. You sitting here before me, you know I'm brown skin. I weigh 125 pounds at the time. I had a diminutive frame, and I'm 5'4 in height. There's no way you're going to get 5'9", 5'10", 6'1", 180 to 200 pounds from 125, and you're not going to ever mix me up with Wesley Snipes or... Miles Davis. Yeah, I mean, that should have been a moment. That alone. For everybody to go, well, okay, let's just look and see if he's got an alibi. And if he does, I mean, maybe we wouldn't even need that. Maybe we'd just say, well, okay, the description doesn't work. The one witness who at least is even saying anything still isn't sure. But that would have been inconvenient. I guess, right. right, because they would have had to go back to the drawing board. And right. we know how these things work, especially in Philly in the early 90s. Right. I mean, it was a time where 
I would say that from what I know about the history of Philadelphia, it probably would have been a time when Philadelphia was probably the wrongful conviction capital of America. Um, they were arresting uh, and beating up people of color. Yes. And, and everybody. But yeah, it was like a it, lot of that. It was basically a policy, and it came from yeah. the top. There was that infamous uh, police chief, Rizzo, who became the mayor, and he was a notoriously brutal, lawless type of a guy. Yeah. The area that I grew up in, in North Philadelphia, Abbott's Four Projects, there are five, literally five people that have been proven to be innocent, myself included, that have all come home. And Anthony Wright, who I believe you may have had on this show, mm -hmm. is one of the guys that came from North Philadelphia. Him and I have the same police officers that worked on his case, did the same thing to me. And there's an amazing, I'm glad you brought that up because there's an incredible article that ran in Rolling Stone magazine about Tony Wright's case. And I'll never forget, there was a pull quote in that article where it said that in whatever year that was, 1990 or something that he was convicted, uh, it said a black man had a better chance of getting justice in Philadelphia, Mississippi than they did in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That is that is so true. I mean, I'm happy to see that now we have a whole different situation in Philadelphia yeah, with Larry, Larry Krasner. It's getting much better with Mr. Krasner. Yeah, and, I, and you know, it had to change, but you were caught up in exactly the wrong place at exactly the wrong time. So... At what point did they arrest you? Was it a day or two after the crime? So as soon as I heard, like, this is one thing that, one other thing that people don't know. Um, I got arrested like a month later. But as soon as I heard any rumors in the neighborhood of my name being mentioned, I actually went down to the police station and asked them did they want to speak to me and stayed down there for over four hours and they did not want to speak to me. Everybody has this thing about what innocent people should do. You don't run. You go to the police station, so on and so forth. So I get arrested November 23rd, 1991. So before I get arrested, I went down there, me and my father and my brother asked them, did they want to talk to me? I signed in the police logbook. All this was said at trial. They didn't want to talk to me. But two weeks later, they came and arrested me, and the nightmare began. I did everything you're supposed to do, and I still got my life stolen away. And so you go to trial. When you had a court-appointed lawyer, I'm assuming? No, actually, um, my dad and I, you know, paid for my first attorney. It, it wasn't court-appointed. My dad was a um, musician. He wasn't rich and anything like that. We were poor, but my dad put the money together, and he got me uh, what we thought was a, you know, decent enough lawyer to represent me, but he did not do his job. How much time did you get to spend with him before the trial? None. None? None. He never visited he you? He came to see me one time to tell me that they were charging me with more cases. And that's it. Left. I would call him all the time. No answer. So on and so forth. It was that bad. Wow. And then you go to trial? Then I go to trial. With an attorney you don't even know? Yeah. Who doesn't really know much about your case? Right, who's really not investigating things like that, and you know, so on and so forth. It was, it was the typical nightmare that you have come to know with all the great work that you do. But it was the typical standard. Okay, don't care. I mean, he wasn't really defending you so much as processing you into prison. There you go. And I mean, was he? 
alcoholic or drug no, addict or no, just no there was an article at the time that said him and two other attorneys took on the most homicide cases in the city of Philadelphia it kind of came out like in the mid 90s but you know oh so he was just taking as many cases as he could get to make as much money as he could and not really worrying about the outcome yeah that's how I feel well, so it sounds like I yeah, mean how else can you that, justify that, that, that? Yeah. I mean and, yeah. when, and when you say they were trying to put other cases on you what kind I was of- charged with over nine other robbery cases, they tried to make it look like I was Jesse James and I was nothing of the sort. If you go back in my community and you do your own type of investigation, which my lawyers and everybody do, everybody be like, yo, he was a good kid. You know what I mean? You know, nobody's perfect, but he ain't no, you know, he ain't no robber, he ain't no murderer, he ain't no stick-up boy, you know what I mean? So I was charged with nine other cases that were later uh, dropped all except for one. All except for the one, the the original one, or except for another one besides that. All except for another one besides that. Yeah. So you go to trial, right? And you're charged with capital murder, which is murder in, in the act of committing another felony, which was robbing her of the earrings, right? Yes. And so, how long did the trial last? The trial went from September about twenty first, twenty fifth to October sixteenth. I was found guilty. October 19th, they gave me the death penalty. Each part of that trial, it was horrible. I still relive it, even to this day, everything that I went through, because you don't think that this is going to happen to you. You think, even then, you believe that the truth is going to come out, that you believe in the system, that everybody can see that I'm not 5'10", 200 pounds and dark skin complexion, but you had a prosecutor that was something of a theme on law and order, right? You had jury members going to sleep, literally going to sleep, no mistrial. It was just a nightmare from beginning to end. I mean, that's a pretty long trial. I'm I'm assuming that your lawyer wasn't doing much. What was he doing, just sitting there listening? Nah, he was, he, 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 he was doing, I guess you could say he was doing I don't know what he was doing. <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, Jason, I don't know what he was doing. All I know is that it was a, the entire thing was a nightmare from beginning to end. There's a part in the trial, like if you go back and look at the transcripts, they even took my height, right? And they get out a tape measure and they take my height. So they see that I'm actually, you know, 5'4", and I'm only 5'5", with this one and a half inch heel on, right? Yeah, I mean, none of that made a difference to the jury. The fact that this crime took place within seconds, and you know, um, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus say can't nobody identify nobody in two minutes, let alone seconds. You know what I mean? This is a, a violent crime. You know what I mean? So, you know, if somebody runs into the studio right here and, you know, robs us right now, Nine times out of ten, we all going to get it wrong when it comes to the physical description. Nobody paid attention to that. Right. And this crime, this took place. There was a chase. The poor girl was, after her, her earrings were stolen, she was shot in the throat. Right. Um, she was with a friend who was luckily not harmed. But we know right. also from decades of research that in cases in which someone is up close when a violent crime is being committed, we know that 
that person is much more likely to mistakenly identify someone because you're, and it makes sense if you think about it, right? Your adrenaline is going right. crazy. Your own life is threatened. Right. It's all that fight or flight and all those reflexes and impulses and all the nerve endings are, are going crazy. And there have been experiments where they, they've actually staged a crime. Right. And then they bring in people from the I've outside, and they and yeah. they found that that people who weren't there have a better chance of being right. Than right. People. So actually, those witnesses are not even as good as guessing. Right. So in this case, you had all of those factors, right? You yeah. Had, so you actually had three witnesses, you know, that testified, but you actually had over nine witnesses, and the other six, you know, didn't testify because they didn't say what the police wanted them to say. They actually said the opposite. What about the other evidence that showed that you were somewhere else? That evidence was withheld for over a decade. And which evidence was that? All right, so there was a a welfare receipt from the young lady uh, that I seen on the bus that instantiated my innocence as well, that the police went to her, threatened her, and they took the welfare receipt from her. Now, welfare receipts are done in military time. She had picked up her welfare receipt, and then she had got on the same K bus that I was on. So the receipt said 1303. They told her that it said 3.03 p.m. because she couldn't tell military time. So when she takes the stand, she says exactly what they wanted her to say, that she seen me at, you know, late on that day and not the actual time that she did see me. Right, so had they not lied about that, then you couldn't have been there. Because they know exactly. what time the crime happened. Exactly. So that that stayed hidden away. For that was years. one thing. Was there were there other things that were withheld as well? So the clothes that they said they took from my father's house that the police officers got on the stand and testified about and said they were the clothes that was used at the crime. None of the witnesses ever seen these clothes. They weren't cataloged and they suddenly poof disappeared. Right. And all this stuff could have help prove my innocence. You know, going back to other evidence, there still was never two other people locked up. There's supposed to be three people to the crime, but only one person was ever arrested, which was me, right? So there's all these holes, you know, but it's all come from the same prosecutor and police officers. And and the very real consequence of this, aside from the obvious, terrible injustice that was done to you and your family is the fact that there's no justice for Shadell Williams, not to mention that the citizens of Philadelphia remained in danger with these two or three guys, however many it was that actually committed this robbery and murder, being out on the loose because you were in there instead of them. That's the horror of the situation that that family hasn't gotten justice. And when you lie about something to someone... You dishonor the victim, and you dishonor their family as well. So let's go back to that day of the verdict. Can you give us a picture of the courtroom that day? I mean, you had now been in the system for almost a year, um, but you still said you had hope and you still believed that no one could possibly convict you because you knew that you weren't there. You knew that none of the evidence matched. You knew you had alibis. Right. But you also knew that, you know, this— trial had been sort of a, you know, for lack of a better word, I'll say it was a clusterfuck. And, right. And yes. So, but even with all of that, did you still have hope that the jury was going to do the right thing? I still had hope 
that the jury was going to do the right thing because I always had faith, period. Ever since I was a kid, I always had, you know, faith in God that, you know, I could get through anything. So I'm sitting there and I'm praying that the right thing is going to happen, that people sitting on this jury would be able to see through all the, you know, the lies and things like that of that nature that went on in that courtroom. You know, when you look at the physical description, when you're seeing that stuff just don't make sense, you know what I mean? And I had hope. So when they stood me up and then they read the verdict, it was like, like somebody just knocked the wind out of me. It was like Tyson hitting somebody, you know, I, I immediately started crying. I remember my mom crying. I remember my sister rocking back and forth. I remember friends that I grew up with, men, crying. Everybody broke down and just started crying because nobody could believe that this was happening because a lot of lives were destroyed on that day. A lot of dreams were destroyed. It was a horrible scene, you know, when you hear these cries and these wells and you you like in this moment that's so sad and like out of body, like you don't want to be in here and, and you, you know, and I'm shaking and I can't believe it. And then you said a few days later you were sentenced to death. Right. Which is the only thing worse that could happen than everything that's already happened. Right. And then you get taken. I get taken to um, greatest four prison. From there you go to Camp Hill and then you get your destination what prison that you go to. So I wound up at Huntington death row after these other two stops of death row. You know what I mean? You get your first taste of death row. Um, and can you explain what that's like for the audience? Because it's That process uh, going on death row is um, your shackle, um, your feet and your hands are shackled. They got like a belt and a black box on you. You literally can't move. And they basically strip you naked, which is a very dehumanizing process when you come. They got the cameras on you and all that stuff, and then they throw you in the cell, you know, and then the nightmare gets even worse, if you can believe it. You know, um, prison is such a dehumanizing place. Prison is meant to destroy families and relationships of everybody, and being on death row, you're considered the worst of the worst, less than human, and you get it from all sides, you know what I mean? Even though you got people in general population that may have worse crimes, it's a perception about people on death row, like they're the worst of the worst, you know? So you catch it, catch it from all sides. What you got to understand, you can't be in prison for nothing like this. So when I say that I went through hell, it's actually an understatement to describe what I went through. I got it from every side, guards, prisoners. I was basically in a fight for my life just to be whole, period. And that is because the case was such a high-profile case? It was a high-profile case, but back then you couldn't be in prison for nothing like this. Anything that had to do with a woman or a child, you can't be in prison. This is real prison. I was in you know, real situations where I was jumped, I was, you know, had to fight, you know what I mean? I had to defend myself, you know what I mean? I was jumped, I was set up by guards, I was rolled on, 
by prisoners, so on and so forth. It was a living nightmare. Something that you never recover from. Something that you never get over. I got teeth in my mouth right here that are broke and fixed from stuff I went through in prison. You know, the battle scars are still on me and in my soul. My situation is just like what we all know that Khalif Browder went through. I went through a lot of that. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you were on death row for a quarter of a century. Yeah, I spent 25.5 years in prison, yeah. How did you maintain sanity? How did you maintain hope? I mean, you know, if someone was to meet you now, they would have no idea that you've right. been through this. I mean, right. you know, there's that saying that everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about, so right. just be kind. But this is the extreme version of that. I mean, everyone's going through their stuff. You don't know what anyone's going through. Right. It might be a heartbreak. Might have just lost their job. Who knows what you're right. running through. We all have our, have our stuff. But this is a different level. Right. I mean, this is a, an extraordinary ordeal for anybody to, to go through and survive. And I'm sure there were a bunch of people that you met, a bunch of men you met on death row who, who didn't survive. I mean... that That is kind of trippy because when I was in there... Um, I seen people kill themselves. You see the body bags come in and you see the ambulance come in. You see people die from natural causes or what have you, or debilitating diseases. But how did you, like, what was it that, that allowed you to, you know, persevere and to not, not take your own life and not go down this rabbit hole that so many of the guys went down? So you, so when you were in prison... For me to sit here and tell you that I never thought about suicide, that's a lie. Many times. Even when I was in the county. Because, like I told you, I was suffering so greatly. Um, and and nobody was hearing my cry. Like, one time I was literally going to take my life because I just couldn't take it. You know what I mean? I'm innocent. And I'm not getting proper representation. You know, everything is going on. You know, the cops done, you know, frame me, whatever the case may be. So for me, I once read this book by Victor E. Franco called A Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. And in this book, he had this quote by Nietzsche. It said, he who who has a why can bear with almost anyhow. And my why has always been my daughters and my mom. You know what I mean? Like, I literally connected with it so much. Because here it was. They had no hope. And he created hope for himself, and he didn't give up. You know, the stories he would tell the other people in the concentration camps about their family so that they could live and survive and have hope of survival, you know? And for me, I would do the same thing. I would visualize myself home with my daughters someday. Let's talk about your daughters. What are their names? My oldest daughter's name for team and my youngest daughter's name, Kiara. And when you went to prison, one of them wasn't even born yet. Kiara wasn't born. Um, she was born one week after I was stolen away. Yeah. So you never got to see her until you got out of prison. My dad would bring her to see me a lot. The family would bring them to see me, but I never literally spent a day with them, with her until I got out. So everything I went through was for them and my father, you know, and then I wanted to restore my family name back, you know. And for me, faith, faith in God was the key in music. 
And so every day I would wake up, I would hear these songs in my mind, literally, because didn't have a good radio station up there, couldn't listen to the music I wanted to listen to. But every day I would hear the whinings, Trust in God, John Coltrane, Dear Lord, and then I would hear Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band. Bruce Springsteen, as you know, he has all these wonderful ad-libs. All right, come on, you know? And I would play Hungry Heart or Born to Run in my head, you know what I mean? And then it would go to Stevie Wonder, If It's Magic, and Fleetwood Mac, Don't Stop. And every day those songs would play in succession in my head, and then I would get up. I would work on the Justice for Jimmy campaign. I would work on legal work. I would call my lawyers. I would discuss law with them, legal issues, how to, you know, proceed and what we should do and things like that. And I just, I think everybody has it in them, you know, to make it out of any situation if they believe. And I just knew and believed that my day of truth was going to come. On every single letter, if you would have received a letter from me in prison and you would have opened it up, on the top head of the paper said, praying for the truth. And that was my motto, praying for the truth. And I always believed that my day of truth was going to come. I see you have a bracelet on that says in big letters, never, ever give up. Never, ever give up. And this one say, not throwing away my shot. My lawyers from Arnold and Porter, um, who are like my family, um, gave me these when, when I came home. Now we understand how you found this extra gear, this extra, this extraordinary otherworldly um, grace or whatever it is that allowed you to maintain yourself and maintain your sanity in an, in an insane situation. Um, how did you end up getting out? How'd that work? You know, for so long, I labored just trying to yell out that I was innocent over and over again. And the system failed me horribly over and over again until I got to federal court. On August 21st, 2013, the Honorable Judge Anita Brody gave this 46-page legal opinion that breaks down the truth about what happens to me. And the part that meant everything to me was the first paragraph, if you read that opinion, it says James Dennis was wrongfully convicted of this crime and she called it a quote grave miscarriage of justice and she's she wrote that police and prosecutors ignored lost or covered up evidence that was favorable to you and then came three years later because nothing happens that quick the third circuit the entire panel ruled in a majority decision um vote you know that it was a grave miscarriage of justice that started the wheels rolling to me getting home so you know, the DA offered a deal to get me out, and it was something that I didn't want to do and um, something that bothers me to this day. But sometimes you got to make decisions that's best for your family and not so much um, you or just to get you out, you know what I mean, because you might be in there another five years and you don't know what's going to happen because I was – um, literally at the end of my road. So if they appeal this decision, you go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And most people ask me that aren't familiar with this work, how could it be that this Judge Anita Brody called this a grave miscarriage of justice, said you were innocent, then the 
Third Circuit Court ruled, I think it was nine to four. Strong majority. Strong majority, and it's a very scathing legal opinion. Quote, evidence suppressed by the prosecution, a receipt corroborating Dennis's alibi, an inconsistent statement by the Commonwealth's key eyewitness, and documents indicating that another individual committed the murder, effectively gutted the Commonwealth's case against Dennis. And she finishes by saying, I'm getting the chills. The withholding of these pieces of evidence denied Dennis a fair trial in state court. So they ruled that you were innocent. And then people say, well, doesn't that mean in America you go home and you're innocent? But that's not the way it works sometimes, is it? No, that's not the way it works. They were going to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court because no one's really trying to say we made a mistake. We did anything wrong. So that would have took more years out of my life. If you look and just as comparison, if you look at the Anthony Wright case it took him three years to go to trial after the dna evidence proved him innocent then he still had to go to trial why do you have to go to trial and the dna evidence so this is philadelphia this is not where people are going to do the right thing well same with lorenzo johnson there you go and i can name other cases william niaz so on and so forth and the list goes on where they don't want to do the right thing so i would have spent another three to five years or more in prison and we wouldn't even be sitting here talking well you and you could have died in there too from i I mean just from deprivation you could die in there but and then i want to go back to the you said it was a scathing opinion yes how did it feel to hear those words so i'm sitting there in prison so i just want to take you back to when the first one happened every day i used to walk back and forth and i'm looking for a sign for unit manager or counselor that runs the block to come and say, you got to call your lawyers because your lawyers called up here, good news or whatever. You don't know. Or it might be a family emergency. This particular day, it didn't even click in. I'm thinking something bad had happened with my mom because I had already lost my dad very tragically. You know, Um, he died from, Alzheimer's and didn't even remember who I was. But just to let you know, when my dad found out that I was actually going to trial back in 1992, he had a stroke sitting at the table and he never was the same again. Wow. So this is the kind of stuff that I endured. So um, that day, they come to the cell. They say, you got to call your lawyers. I call my lawyers. A guy yells out the door. That's not bad news. Shorty is what they call me, you know what I mean? Shorty doo-wop because of the music thing. So they say, that's not a bad call. So I pick up the phone, and my lawyers say, James A. Dennis. And they never said my, you know, my entire name. said, James A. Dennis. And they said, your innocence has been proven. My two lawyers on the phone, Amy and Ryan, who are like brothers and sisters to me, and they were telling me, like, kept saying it but I didn't really fully get the full magnitude of it and then when I got off the phone I put my towel up to the window and I broke down and cried because for me everything that I went through in prison I've been waiting for that so when you read the legal opinion and you see the first words where it say James A. Dennis was wrong that meant everything to me that's what I waited for period. And you don't know that you're going to get that, but that's what I waited for my entire life that I was incarcerated. So when the second decision come, it's the same thing. I put the towel up 
put my head into the pillow and I cried like I ain't never cried before. I didn't know what was going to happen. I'm hoping and praying that they're going to do the right thing. And so when it came, it was like, you know, and the lawyers came up there and we talked and what does this mean? And it's a real emotional roller coaster where, you know, did y'all call my mom? Did y'all tell my mom? Did y'all tell my daughters? Did you, you know what I mean? Do all these people know what just happened? So it's an emotional roller coaster is the best way I can explain it. I don't think anyone can possibly begin to understand it that hasn't been through it. And, and let's talk about the day you got out. May 13th, 2017. I was released from SCI Green Prison. Corby was there. My lawyers were there. Um, a, a cool guy by the name of Dan was there. And they were waiting outside for me in a van, you know. But my lawyer, uh, Ryan, came in to get me and give me a suit. And I hadn't had on a suit. And... 25 years, you know, since I've been to church. Oddly enough, the last night that I was home, I was in church. <laughs> you know, I went to church and then I get arrested that morning. So it had been a long time since I had put on a suit. So I put on this suit, this tie, and we walk out. There's hugs, things like that. And then we get on this van and then we're going and everything seems surreal. And I start making phone calls to my mom, to my daughters, to my supporters, you know, thanking everybody. And I'm on my way to Philadelphia, and we're playing Boys the Men. We're playing Meek Mills. We're playing Elton John, Philadelphia Freedom. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're good. You know, as we come in the city, you know, we, we're playing Patti LaBelle. We're playing, you know, all my favorites as we're on the highway, you know, driving. John Coltrane, you know, the boss in the East Street Band is up in there. We're... We just grooving down the highway. Me, I'm sitting there. There's a lot of laughter going back and forth, and I'm in the moment. I don't know what to eat when we get to a rest stop. I I can tell you that my first meal was like some French fries with some onions on it and a milkshake with some sunflower seeds. I I ain't know what to eat. I didn't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had never seen a convenience store where McDonald's and a gas station, all that was in one now, you know, stuff like that. So when we get to Philadelphia, after we get down the highway, you know, my mom and daughters are at the hotel and we have this, there's this moment with me and my mom. It's it's a beautiful moment where we just sit there and we just hold their hands and, you know, the, it's emotional, you know, and and now I'm back home. And how did you meet your beautiful wife who I've just recently met myself. Right. She's my childhood sweetheart. We actually met at Girls High um, High School in Philadelphia and we were singing on the District 6 Festival choir and back then she was an alto. <laughs> I was a soprano and uh, we had met on the choir at 11 and 12 years old. But there was 25 and a half year gap in there somewhere. Yeah. So how does this work? So there was a petition that was started by my supporters to save my life on change.org. So my supporters would send me in the mail the actual petition to see how it was growing. And I was going through the names and then they were in like alphabetical order. And then when it got to C, 
I seen Corby. And it was like, oh, whoa. You know, it's like that moment when you're like, okay. Okay, that's my childhood sweetheart, right? You know what I mean? And you like, okay. So then I had asked my sister Hope to ask her, you know, did she believe in my innocence? And my sister Hope asked her, and she said, yeah. And it was like, okay, good. Because you looking for a silver lining for anybody to believe in you, but for anybody to know the truth. You want everybody, every single person that ever cared about you to know the truth about the situation and did she read about it and, you know, and how did she find me, basically. You know what I mean? Because I basically, like, it's almost like I fell off the face of the earth for so many years and we didn't have any contact. So when I seen her name on the petition, I was, like, blown away. So I eventually called home. And my mother says, somebody's here. And I says, who? And she don't tell me. It's like a little game. Then she gets on the phone. And we start talking. I'm still not thinking nothing of it. I don't want to. Maybe she just came to see my mother and check on me, you know. But the next Sunday, I call. She's there again and again. And so then you start to feel like, okay, maybe. And then eventually she wanted to come see me. But I had shut down. I was on some, I'd stopped having visits for a number of years, for over at least eight years or so. I stopped having visits. I stopped going to yard, the library. I built the library in my cell. The lawyers had sent me books. And all I was doing was getting up every day, studying, working on the Just for Jimmy campaign, because I was already suffering from the panic and anxiety attacks and didn't know that I had the PTSD. Anyway, she came five years prior to me being released before any of the good stuff started to happen. And it just seemed like when she came, all the good stuff started happening again. You know what I mean? You got the legal decision after that. You know, the one from the Honorable Judge Anita Brody. And she insisted on coming to see me. And it just went from there. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just went from there. Yes, it did. Yeah. And here you are. Got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <lucky>. you did. <laughs> Very I'll tell lucky. You, what, you know, you're a remarkable guy. I mean, uh, I'm always just totally in awe of people like yourself, who I get the privilege of being around on a very frequent basis. It's almost a daily basis, actually. Um, I'm having dinner tonight with John Huffington, who was in on death row for 32 years in wow. Maryland. and. Um, wow. You know, I was with Damien Eccles this weekend and uh, Amanda Knox. Story and well, yeah. Of course, um, you know, there's so many incredible human beings and, and one more so than the next. And I'm always like, every time I meet somebody uh, like you, I, I always feel like I've heard everything there is to hear. And then I hear a story like yours and I'm like, my head's just right. exploding again. But um, I have to ask, are you bitter? I guess... For me is what I want to tell you is that nobody comes through the prison system unscathed. For me, I'm in therapy. I go to therapy every week. I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, panic and anxiety attacks. My life was destroyed for something I didn't do. And it's something that when I hear sirens, I get shook up. You know, I literally don't go nowhere. You know, me coming here was a was a thing. You know, it took a lot of courage for me just to 
come here. So there's a lot of bitterness inside of me. To say that there's not would be lying. I'm hurt by what has happened to me, you know, and I'm hurt that it's still happening to other people. Like I know other innocent men and women that are in prison. What I try to do with that bitterness and that hurt that I feel, I try to channel it into doing productive things like my music or champion other people causes like um, Ralph Stokes, who's an innocent man in prison at SCI Green, Willie Vesey, who's locked up, who had the same police detectives and district attorney, and he's locked up. And I go to their hearings and try to be supportive to their families and stuff like that. And when I have an opportunity to speak out, I speak out, you know. So there's a lot of hurt in me, you know, Um, what my daughters went through while I was out of their life. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget them in all of this too, right? I mean, to talk about an innocent victim, they were baby. Well, one wasn't even born yet, and the other one, one was a baby. One wasn't even born, and you have to understand the ripple effects of that. You know what I mean? The lasting ripple effects of not having your father in your life for 25.5 years. You know, when the decision was made to get me out, and I was on the phone with her, you know, one of the things that she said to me was... I used to sit by, um, she said, I used to sit by the door every day and look out the window and wait for you to come home. That's, that's something hard to swallow. She said, all I want you to do is to come home and have a relationship with your granddaughter. And the ripple effects are very lasting on anybody who has been in prison. None of us no matter how good it seems everyone is doing, no one comes through the system unscathed. Me having nightmares all the time, struggling out here in the world, it's, it's real. It's not easy. You know, because oftentimes when I hear a siren, I think that they coming back to steal my life. I made sure that there's a locator on my phone at all times where I'm at. You know, when I first came home, I was literally calling the lawyers like every hour on the hour, calling other people just so my whereabouts are always known. It's that deep. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, Thank God for the limits. 
every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. People that are listening, uh, I'm sure they're thinking... What could I do to help, right? Some of these guys that you left behind who are innocent and stuck in the situation that you were in, what could they do to possibly help you? Um, Do you have uh, any kind of social media? Do you do speaking? Do you have a a, a page where people could donate um, to to help you with your transition? If that's even something that interests you, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to make any assumptions. But what can people do to help? Either the people that you left behind... um, Let's start with that. Ralph Stokes, he has a Facebook page and a website, ralphstokes.org. Get in touch with his supporters there. For Willie Vesey, you can look up his case and get in touch with his supporters, and you can write these men. They are still in prison. Willie Vesey is doing life, V-E-A-S-E-Y. And Ralph Stokes has death at uh, SEI Green. And any one of you listening can make a difference. You can help by writing them and reaching out to them and then just start championing their cause like I'm trying to do, get involved on their support team and, you know, help get them some type kind of justice. You know what I mean? Because everybody can make a difference. Even when they think they can't, they can use their voice to make a difference through social media, through other outlets. What about what about you? What do you need? What, what What's... <sighs> I don't... 
I don't necessarily, I'm not looking for a handout, you know what I mean? I don't even want to say it that way. Maybe that's wrong enough, you know, to say it, but there is a trust fund that my lawyer, Amy Rowe, set up. Amy Rowe of uh, Washington, uh, D.C., Merlin, and you can look it up on our Facebook page where people could donate if they wanted to, but I have a social media, Instagram, um, Jimmy underscore Dennis underscore music. I just like for people to listen to my song, You Said, if give a listen. If you like it, you like it, <laughs> you know. Hopefully you'll like it, you know what I mean? And I just really want to be a part of the music fraternity, you know, earn my keep that way, you know. It's always been my dream to be in the business since I was a kid. And for me, I used to see my musical heroes, Gladys Knight, Bruce Springsteen and all on the Grammys. And even when I was on death row, that was the one time on death row, anybody could tell you that know me, you could not call me when the Grammys were on. I disappeared. I would put on my headphones and I would watch the Grammys and I was in New York or LA all the time. I would not respond to anybody. I was there watching, you know, and rooting and cheering everybody on. What's your favorite song to sing? Oh, I don't necessarily have a favorite song to sing. I just like, you know, whatever comes to my heart, you know. Well, you what's know, your, what do you want to sing right now? You want to sing something right now? Yeah. It'll be the first I, I, time on Wrongful Conviction we've had anybody sing. I'll sing you like said. <laughs> I'll sing you said if you don't mind. Do it. Okay. Pulled through the hurricane, went through fire rain, felt all lies, pain, crazy, the insane, for you, for you, nothing ever right or bounce, always there to be found, never once let you down, I was there for you, For you, you said you love me. Honest and true, you said you love me. I'll be there for you. You said you love me. Honest and true, you said. Me, I'll be there for you. <laughs> there we go. What's it? What's the address? JimmyDennis.net. You can find the single you said, you said with a you and then the word said. Okay, last question. So, what would you tell people? Because everyone that's listening right now someday is going to get a jury duty notice, right. And you went through a really crazy situation, people sleeping through a death penalty right. case. I mean, the word disrespect doesn't even come to mind. I mean, that's not strong enough. Um, it's, it's reprehensible. It's, it's fucking terrible. But that's beside the point. What would you tell people if they get called to jury duty and they end up on a criminal trial? What advice could you give people, people listening, saying, I don't ever want to make a mistake like that. I don't ever want to send an innocent man to jail. What What would they look out for? What would be the tips that you could give them? The first thing you shouldn't do is worry about making a mistake. You should go in there, and it has to be like 12 angry men in that room. 
if you take jury duty. Somebody has to be Jack Lemon or Henry Fonda, right? You have to pay attention to every single thing going on. Don't be biased. Sit back and pay close attention to the evidence and weigh it. It is a large responsibility for anybody to take on jury duty, and you should want to because you could be the reason that somebody doesn't get railroaded like me and that an innocent man or woman comes home. We don't need more Jimmy Dennis, Damian Echols, William Niaz, Jeff Dislicks, and Amanda Knox, and so on and so forth. We have to stop it somewhere. And by you sitting on the jury, paying attention to all the evidence, and then weighing it properly, you can be the one voice that says this doesn't make any sense or pay attention to this facts and not the theatrics of it all that the other side is trying to do. Because that's what happened here. A lot of theatrics from the parties that be, the DA and the police, a lot of theatrics and lies. And there was no way that anybody sat on that jury and shouldn't have been paying attention to the facts. You have to pay attention to the facts. Facts matter. That's good advice, and I'm sure it's going to help people as they go into uh, into that situation, which is a difficult situation for anybody. I think, you know, being in a courtroom and it's uncomfortable, it can take a long time, but it's a responsibility we all have to each other. I mean, because this could really happen to anybody, and you're yes. living proof you're just a, just a regular person. So, okay, then... I guess the last part now is just anybody that you want to thank that maybe we haven't thought about already. And then um, any closing words that you have. This is a tradition that we have on Wrongful Conviction. At the end of the episode, I get to just sit and listen, which is what I like to do. And uh, first, I want to thank you, Jimmy. Very courageous of you to, to come up here. I know it wasn't easy and to share your thoughts and your experience with the audience. So thank you so much for being here. Thank I'm looking for forward me. I'm looking forward to maintaining a friendship and I have I some ideas. That. You know, you were talking before about how how comfortable the bed is at the Western in New York. <laughs> yeah. Well, wrongful conviction is going to get you that bed. So. Oh, my God. So you'll, you'll, you'll sleep Appreciate good, you know. That. Maybe you'll you fall asleep listening to your own show. Appreciate anyway, so so we got that covered. But um, anyway, so now, like I said, I get, to, I get to shut down my microphone and just put my headphones, kick back, and, and listen. So it's all up to you. I want to first thank you. Um, Jason, for having me, you and Connor, it means the world to me. Your hospitality is greatly appreciated. And I just want to commend you for the work you're doing in the innocence community. It takes a lot of courage to do what you do. I want to thank Jennifer Thompson. She's been one of my biggest supporters, and she's a hero of mine. I call her my shero. You know what I mean? She's been there for me um, from day one, championing my cause. I like to thank all my supporters, um, you know, around the country um, that been there for me when I was in prison and since I came home. Um, Jeff, uh, Melanie, uh, Kathy and Ron and everybody. Um, I want to thank my friends. My friends have been an instrumental support for me. You know, when you get get out, you need support. You know, your family, your friends. So I want, just want to thank my friends and my wife, uh, Corby, and uh, my friend Kasim, Kwadir, uh, Ski, and Abdul, all for supporting me. Arnold and Porter Law Firm, um, Amy, 
Ryan, Rebecca, Megan, Melanie, Kitty Behan, and James. They did a wonderful job, and it's because of them that I'm sitting here. They're like family to me, and I love them dearly. And I just want to tell people listening that if you do your due diligence and you read a case and you want to get involved, don't be scared to get involved. Reach out to that person in prison. Become their supporter and become their champion. Become their voice because a lot of people in prison have no voice. And to everybody on death row, to every man and woman in prison, never give up and never give up on your dream. No matter what your dreams are for everybody in the innocent community, I don't care if you wanted to be a fisherman or a carpenter, go for it and don't give up. Never give up. Never, ever give up. This has been an extraordinary episode of Wrongful Conviction with Death Row exoneree Jimmy Dennis. Jimmy, thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people 
It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.